Chapter 2 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 2 Childhood. Gilbert Keith Chesterton was born on May 29, 1874, at a house in Sheffield Terrace, Camden Hill, just below the Great Tower of the Waterworks, which so much impressed his childish imagination. Lower down the hill was the Anglican Church of St. George, and here he was baptized. When he was about five, the family moved to Warwick Gardens, as old-fashioned London houses go. Eleven Warwick Gardens is small. On the ground floor, a back and front room were for the Chesterton's drawing room and dining room, with a folding door between, the only other sitting room being a small study built out over the garden. A long, narrow green strip, which must have been a good deal longer before a row of garages was built at the back, was Gilbert's playground. His bedroom was a long room at the top of a not very high house, for what is in most London houses the drawing-room floor is in this house filled by two bedrooms, and there is only one floor above it. Cecil was five years younger than Gilbert, who welcomed his birth with the remark, Now I shall always have an audience, a prophecy remembered by all parties because it proved so singularly false. As soon as Cecil could speak, he began to argue, and the brothers' intercourse thenceforward consisted of unending discussion. They always argued. They never quarreled. There was also a little sister, Beatrice, who died when Gilbert was very young, so young that he remembered a fall she had from a rocking horse more clearly than he remembered her death. And in his memory, linked with the fall, the sense of loss and sorrow that came with the death. It would be impossible to tell the story of his childhood one half so well as he has told it himself. It is the best part of his autobiography. Indeed, it is one of the best childhoods in literature, for Gilbert Chesterton most perfectly remembered the exact truth, not only about what happened to a child, but about how a child thought and felt. What is more, he sees childhood not as an isolated fragment or an excursion into fairyland, but as his real life, the real beginnings of what should have been a more real life, a lost experience in the land of the living. I was subconsciously certain then, as I am consciously certain now, that there was the white and solid road and the worthy beginning of the life of man, and that it is man who afterwards darkens it with dreams or goes astray from it in self-deception. It is only the grown man who lives a life of make-believe and pretending, and it is he who has his head in a cloud. Autobiography, page 49. Here are the beginnings of the man's philosophy in life and experience of the child. He was living in a world of reality, and that reality was beautiful, in the clear light of an eternal morning which had a sort of wonder in it, as if the world were as new as myself. A child in this world, like God in the moment of creation, looks upon it and sees that it is very good. It was not that he was never unhappy as a child, and he had his share of bodily pain. 
I had a fair amount of toothache, and especially earache. But the child has his own philosophy, and makes his own proportion. And unhappiness and pain are of a different texture, or held on a different tenure. What was wonderful about childhood is that anything in it was a wonder. It was not merely a world full of miracles. It was a miraculous world. What gives me this shock is almost anything I really recall. Not the things I should think most worth recalling. This is where it differs from the other great thrill of the past. All that is connected with first love and the romantic passion. For that, though equally poignant, comes always to a point, and is narrow, like a rapier piercing the heart, whereas the other was more like a hundred windows opened on all sides of the head. Autobiography, pages 31 to 32. These windows opening on all sides so much more swiftly for the genius than for the rest of us led to a result often to be noted in the childhood of exceptional men, a combination of backwardness and precocity. Gilbert Chesterton was in some ways a very backward child. He did not talk much before three. He learnt to read only at eight. He loved fairy tales. As a child, he read them or had them read aloud to him. As a big boy, he wrote and illustrated a good many, some of which are printed in The Colored Lands. I have found several fragments in praise of Hans Andersen, written apparently in his school days. In the chapter of orthodoxy called The Ethics of Elfland, he shows how the truth about goodness and happiness came to him out of the old fairy tales and made the first basis for his philosophy. In George MacDonald's story, The Princess and the Goblin made, he says, a difference to my whole existence, which helped me to see things in a certain way from the start. It is the story of a house where goblins were in the cellar and a kind of fairy godmother in a hidden room upstairs. This story had made all the ordinary staircases and doors and windows into magical things. It was the awakening of the sense of wonder and joy in the ordinary things always to be his. Still, more important was the realization represented by the goblins below stairs, that when evil things besieging us do appear, they do not appear outside, but inside. In life, as in this story, there is a house that is our home, that is rightly loved as our home, but of which we hardly know the best or the worst, and must always wait for the one and watch against the other. Since I first read that story, some five alternative philosophies of the universe have come to our colleagues out of Germany, blowing through the world like the east wind. But for me, that castle is still standing in the mountains. Its light is not put out. Introduction to George MacDonald and his wife. All this to Gilbert made the story the most real, the most realistic, in the exact sense of the phrase, the most like life, of any story he ever read, then or later. Another recurrent image in books by the same author is that of a great white horse. And Gilbert says, To this day, I can never see a big white horse in the street without a sudden sense of indescribable things. Of his playmates, one of his first memories, he writes in the autobiography, is playing in the garden under the care of a girl with ropes of golden hair, 
to whom my mother afterwards called out from the house, You are an angel, which I was disposed to accept without metaphor. She is now living in Vancouver as Mrs. Robert Kidd. Mrs. Kidd, then Annie Furman, was the daughter of a girlhood friend of Mrs. Chesterton's. She called her Aunt Marie, and she and her sister, Gilbert says in the autobiography, had more to do with enlivening my early years than most. She has a vivid memory of Sheffield Terrace, where all three Chesterton children were born, and where the little sister Beatrice, whom they called Bertie, died. Gilbert in those days was called Diddy. His father then, and later, was Mr. Ed to the family and intimate friends. Soon after Bertie's death, they moved to Warwick Gardens. Mrs. Kidd writes, The little boys were never allowed to see a funeral. If one passed down Warwick Gardens, they were hustled from the nursery window at once. Possibly this was because Gilbert had such a fear of sickness or accident. If Cecil gave the slightest sign of choking at dinner, Gilbert would throw down his spoon or fork and rush from the room. I have seen him do it many times. Cecil was fond of animals. Gilbert wasn't. Cecil had a cat. He named Faustine because he wanted her to be abandoned and wicked. But Faustine turned out to be a gentleman. Gilbert's storytelling and verse-making began very early, but not, I think, in great abundance. His drawing, even earlier, and of this there is a great deal. There is nothing very striking in the written fragments that remain, but his drawings, even at the age of five, are full of vigor. The faces and figures are always rudimentary human beings, sometimes a good deal more, and they are taken through lengthy adventures drawn on the backs of bits of wallpaper, of insurance forms, and little books sewn together, or sometimes in long strips glued end to end by his father. These drawings can often be dated exactly, for Edward Chesterton, who later kept collections of press cuttings and photographs of his son, had already begun to collect his drawings, writing the date on the back of each. With the earlier ones, he may, one sometimes suspects, have helped a little, but it soon becomes easy to distinguish between the two styles. Edward Chesterton was the most perfect father that could have been imagined to help in the opening of windows on every side. My father might have reminded people of Mr. Pickwick, except that he was always bearded and never bald. He wore spectacles and had all the Pickwickian evenness of temper and pleasure in the humors of travel. He had as his son, further notes in the autobiography, a power of invention which created for children the permanent anticipation of what is profoundly called a surprise. The child of today chooses his Christmas present in advance and decides between Peter Pan and the pantomime, when he does not get both. The Chesterton children saw their first glimpses of fantasy through the framework of a toy theater, of which their father was carpenter, scene painter, and scene shifter, author and creator of actors and actresses a few inches high. Gilbert's earliest recollection is of one of these figures in a golden crown, carrying a golden key, and his father was all through his childhood a man with a golden key who admitted him into a world of wonders. I think Gilbert's father meant more to him than his mother, fond as he was of her. Most of their friends seemed to feel that Cecil was her favorite son. Neither was ever demonstrative, Annie Furman says. I never saw either of them kiss his mother, but in some ways the mother spoilt both boys. 
They had not the training that a strict mother or an efficient nurse usually accomplishes with the most refractory. Gilbert was never refractory, merely absent-minded, but it is doubtful whether he was sent upstairs to wash his hands or brush his hair, except in preparation for a visit or a ceremonial occasion. Not even then interpolates Annie, and it is perfectly certain that he ought to have been so several times a day. No one minded if he was late for meals. His father, too, was frequently late, and Francis, during her engagement, often saw his mother put the dishes down in the fireplace to keep hot, and wait patiently in spite of Gilbert's description of her as more swift, relentless, and generally radical in her instincts than his father. Annie Furman's earlier memories fit this description better. Much as she loved her aunt, she writes, Aunt Marie was a bit of a tyrant in her own family. I have been many times at dinner, when there might be a joint, say, and a chicken, and she would say positively to Mr. Ed, Which will you have, Edward? Edward, I think I'd like a bit of chicken. Aunt M, fiercely, No, you won't. You'll have mutton. That happens so often. Sometimes Alice Grosjean, the youngest of Aunt M's family, familiarly known as Sloper, was there. When asked her preference, she would say diffidently, I think I'll take a little mutton. Don't be a fool, Alice. You know you like chicken. And chicken she got. Visitors to the house in later years dwell on Mrs. Chesterton's immense spirit of hospitality, the gargantuan meals, the eager desire the guests should eat enormously, and the wittiness of her conversation. Schoolboy contemporaries of Gilbert say that although immensely kind, she alarmed them by a rather forbidding appearance. Her clothes, thrown on anyhow, and blackened and protruding teeth, which gave her a witch-like appearance. The house, too, was dusty and untidy. She called them always by their surnames, both when they were little boys and after they grew up. Oldershaw, Bentley, Solomon. Not only says Mrs. May Chesterton, did Aunt Marie address Gilbert's friends by their surnames, but frequently added Darling to them. I have heard her address Bentley when a young man thus, Bentley, darling, come and sit over here, to which invitation he turned a completely deaf ear, as he was perfectly content to remain where he was. Indiscriminately, she also addressed her maids, waiting at table with the same endearment. A letter written when Gilbert was only six would seem to show that Mrs. Chesterton had not yet become so reckless about her appearance, and was still open to the appeal of millinery. She always was, says Annie. The letter is from John Barker of High Street, Kensington, and is headed in handwriting, Drapery and Millinery Establishment, Kensington High Street, September 21st, 1880. Madam, we are in receipt of instructions from Mr. Edward Chesterton to wait upon you for the purpose of offering for your selection a bonnet of the latest Parisian taste, of which we have a large assortment ready for your choice, or can, if preferred, make you one to order. Our assistant will wait upon you at any time you may appoint, unless you would prefer to pay a visit to our millinery department yourself. Mr. Chesterton informs us that as soon as you have made your selection, he will hand us a check for the amount. We are given to understand that Mr. Chesterton proposes this transaction as a remembrance of the anniversary of what he instructs us to say he regards as a happy and auspicious event. We have accordingly entered it in our books in that aspect. 
In conveying as we are desired to do, Mr. Chesterton's best wishes for your health and happiness, and for many future anniversaries, may we very respectfully join to them our own, and add that during many years to come, we trust to be permitted to supply you with goods of the best description for cash, on the principle of the lowest prices consistent with excellence of quality and workmanship. We have the honor to be, madam, your most obedient servants, John Barker and Company. The order entered in their books under that aspect. The readiness to provide millinery for cash convinces you, as G.K. himself says of another story, that Dick Swiveller really did say, when he who adores thee has left but the name in case of letters and parcels. Dickens must have dictated the letter to John Barker. After all, he was only dead ten years. Aunt Marie used to say, adds Annie Furman, that Mr. Ed married her for her beautiful hair. It was auburn and very long and wavy. He used to sit behind her in church. She liked pretty clothes, but lacked the vanity to buy them for herself. I have a little blue hanging watch that she bought one day. She always appreciated little attentions. The playmates of Gilbert's childhood are not described in the autobiography except for Annie's long ropes of golden hair. But in one of the innumerable fragments written in his early twenties, he describes a family of girls who played with him when they were very young together. It is headed, Chapter 1, A Contrast and a Climax, and several other odd bits of verse and narrative introduce the Vivian family as early and constant playmates. One of the best ways of feeling a genuine friendly enthusiasm for persons of the other sex, without gliding into anything with a shorter name, is to know a whole family of them. The most intellectual idolatry at one shrine is apt to lose its purely intellectual character, but a genial polytheism is always bracing and platonic. Besides, the Vivians lived in the same street, or rather gardens, as ourselves, and were amusing as bringing one within sight of what an old friend of mine named Bentley called with more than his usual glum and severity of expression the remote outpost of Kensington society. For these reasons, and a great many much better ones, I was very much elated to have the family, or at least the three eldest girls who represent it, to the neighborhood, standing once more on the well-rubbed lawn of our old garden where some of my earliest recollections were of subjecting them to treatment such as I considered appropriate to my own well-established character of robber, tying them to trees to the prejudice of their white frocks, and otherwise misbehaving myself in the funny old ways, before I went to school and became a son of a gentleman only. I've never been able, and in fact I've never tried to tell which of the three I really like best, and if the severe usefulness and domesticity of the eldest girl, with her quiet art colors and broad, brave forehead as pale as the white roses that clouded the garden, if these mature qualities in Nina demanded my respect more than the levity of the others, I fear they did not prevent me from feeling an almost equal tide of affection towards the sleepy acumen and ingrained sense of humor of Ida, the second girl, and book reader of the family, or Violet, a veritable delightful child, with a temper as formless and erratic as her tempest of red hair. What old memories this garden calls up, said Nina, who, like many essentially simple and direct people, had a strong dash of sentiment and a strong penchant for being her own emotional 
pint stoop on the traditional subjects and occasions. I remember so well coming here in a new pink frock when I was a little girl. It wasn't so new when I went away. I certainly must have been a brute, I replied, but I have endeavored to make a lifetime atone for my early conduct, and I fell into thinking of how even Nina, miracle of diligence and self-effacement, remembered a new pink frock across the abyss of the years. Walking with my old friends around the garden, I found in every earth plot and tree root the arenas of an attractive and adventurous life in early boyhood. An unpublished fragment. Edward Chesterton was a liberal politically, and what has been called a liberal Christian religiously. When the family went to church, which happened very seldom, it was to listen to the sermons of Stopford Brook. Some twenty years later, Cecil was to remark with amusement that he had, as a small boy, heard every part of the teaching now, 1908, being sent out by R.J. Campbell under the title The New Religion. The Chesterton liberalism entered into the view of history given to their children, and it produced from Gilbert the only poem of his childhood worth quoting. I cannot date it, but the very immature handwriting and curious spelling mark it as early. Probably most children have read, or at any rate, to my own generation, had read Aiton's Lays of the Scottish Cavaliers, and played at being Cavaliers as a result. But Gilbert cannot play at being a Cavalier. He had learned from his father to be a roundhead, as had every good liberal of that day. What was to be done about it? He took the lays and rewrote them in an excellent imitation of Aiton, but on the opposite side. In view of his own later developments, such a line as drive the trembling papists backwards has an ironic humor. But one wonders what Aiton himself would have made of a small boy who took his rhythm and sometimes his very words, turned his hero into a traitor, false Montrose, and his traitor, Argyle, into a hero. I have left the spelling untouched. Sing of the great Lord Archibald. Sing of his glorious name. Sing of his covenanting faith and his everlasting fame. One day he summoned all his men to meet on Kirchen's brow. Three thousand covenanting chiefs who no master would allow. Three thousand knights with claymores drawn and targets tough and strong. Knights who for the right would ever fight and never bear the wrong. And he cried his hand uplifted, Soldiers of Scotland, hear my vow. Ere the morning shall have risen, I will lay the traitors low. Or as ye march from the battle, Marching back in battle file, ye shall there among the corpses find the body of Argyle. Soldiers, soldiers, onward, 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 soldiers, follow me. Come, remember ye the crimes of the fiend of fell Dundee. Onward, let us draw our claymores, let us draw them on our foes. Now then I am threatened with the fate of false Montrose. Drive the trembling papists backwards, drive away the Tories' horde. Let them tell their house of villains, they have felt the Campbell's sword. And the next morn he arose, and he girded on his sword. They asked him many questions, but he answered not a word. And he summoned all his men, and he led them to the field. And we cried unto our master, that we die and never yield. That same morn we drove right backwards, all the servants of the Pope, 
and our Lord Archibald we saved from a halter and a rope. Far and fast fled all the traitors, far and fast fled all the grames, fled that cursed tribe who lately stained their honor and their names. End of chapter 2